All right, let's just play a quick word association game right now. What comes to mind when you hear the word Thanksgiving? Turkey, right? Stuffed bellies, family, maybe pilgrims wearing funny hats or walking around with those ridiculous blunderbuss guns, you know, that kind of look like a trumpet, anything like that. You know, those are the American conventions of when we think of Thanksgiving or our holiday of Thanksgiving. But believe it or not, the Word of God actually talks about Thanksgiving quite a bit. In fact, in the New Testament alone, the word Thanksgiving is used 15 times. It's the Greek word eucharistia, which means giving thanks, gratitude, or thankfulness, or thanksgiving. And actually, eucharistia comes from the root word charis, or grace. Alright, so the Greek word for thanksgiving actually comes from the root word grace. And that's because thanksgiving is that response or that gratitude that we give for receiving unmerited favor. Thanksgiving is that response that we give for receiving grace. Now, Thanksgiving, as you can imagine, is so much more than just a day of feasting, biblically speaking. In fact, Thanksgiving, what we'll find here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Thanksgiving was the core motivation of the Apostle Paul's ministry. That's right, Thanksgiving. You could even say that Thanksgiving is the core reason of why the church exists, why this church exists. It's the core motivation for evangelism, and it's the core reason why we support missions. It's the core reason why we share our faith. It's the core reason why we are here today and why we have gifts to use for the kingdom of God. Now back to our word association game. When you hear the word thanksgiving, we don't always think about it in that heavy way, do we? Well, today we're going to examine a portion of Scripture that talks about Thanksgiving. Instead of looking into every little bit of what Thanksgiving looks like, we're going to actually look at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to the church in Corinth, and he spends a lot of time in the book of 2 Corinthians defining and defending his apostolic ministry. Now, here in chapter 4, he's going to speak about the purpose and motivation of his life's work, of his ministry as an apostle. He's going to be explaining why in the midst of so much hardship in life, so much opposition, so much affliction, he keeps going on as an apostle. He keeps going at it and how he doesn't lose heart in his ministry. You know, every good ministry, organization, or cause, or anything like that has a good mission statement, right? Every good, good organization's got a statement of why they're doing what they're doing. And Paul more or less gives his in these verses. And we're going to see how it relates all to Thanksgiving. So if you haven't already, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 with me. And starting in verse 1, we read, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We'll pause there. Simply put, Paul preached the gospel boldly, he preached the gospel humbly, and he preached the gospel honestly. So many Christians today, so many churches, perhaps maybe even us at times, we have this tendency of wanting to package the message of Christ in a way that we think will sound appealing. We take the Holy Spirit out of the equation, His prerogative and ability to work on hearts, and we focus on our own persuasiveness. Or perhaps we focus on our own shortcomings our own fears or abilities or lack thereof. And sometimes we focus on what we think the palatability of the gospel is. Like, is this really what people want to hear? Does this really jibe with our culture or what this person might be looking for? And if we go down this road too far, we pretty much end up reducing the message of Christ to a sales pitch or to debate class. Yet we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, just a couple chapters earlier than here, that the gospel is divisive. It is disruptive. There will be people who hate you for it. But it's not our job to varnish the truth. God's truth does not change based on time or culture or the person giving the message or the person hearing the message. And that's because it's not about the messenger whatsoever. It's about the eternal God, His glory, His Son, Jesus Christ, and His plan for redemption. So that's why in verse 2 here, Paul says, we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways of ministering the gospel. He's saying, we don't want to have anything to do with shameful or dishonest tactics. Paul isn't concerned with money or approval or even numbers for numbers' sake. And that's why he says we refuse to practice cunning or craftiness or or trickery. He's saying we don't tamper with the Word. We don't adulterate God's Word and the message that He has tasked us to give by diluting it or altering it or trying to make it suit our needs or make it more palatable to the world. It's not, uh, you know, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine of the gospel go down. No, instead, it's a straight, no chaser, forthright proclamation of God's eternal truth. That is because God's truth does not change based on time or culture or the person giving the message or the one hearing the message. Psalm 19 says, forever, O Lord, forever, Your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And it goes on to say, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. So Paul is committed to the open statement of truth. It's not something that's going to shift or evolve with time as culture evolves. But Paul is also saying that he can commend himself to everyone's conscience in God's sight. 
He can commend himself before everyone for the testimony that he has preached for how he's lived and before God because he's lived that testimony. His ministry reflected the truth that he proclaimed. He had integrity in what he preached, but also how he lived in accordance to what he preached. And even though he preached the gospel to human ears, as all of us do, even though we give the gospel to people with human ears, Paul knew that his ultimate audience was God. So Paul isn't hiding or holding back the truth. In fact, in verse 3, he says that if the gospel that he is preaching is hidden or concealed, it's concealed to those who are perishing. It's not Paul's fault or your fault or the gospel's fault if a person rejects it. It's their own hardened heart that makes them incapable of seeing the truth and submitting to the Lord. And the God of this world that verse 3 talks about, Satan has deceived and blinded them. In fact, it's only through the gospel that the blinded could actually see, that the hardened of heart could actually have a heart that desires God. Then in verse 5, Paul's saying that that's why he doesn't preach himself. That's why he doesn't preach his own personality or his own brand, but he preaches Jesus Christ, the only power to bring light and save those in darkness. In fact, in verse 6, Paul is saying, here he's quoting Scripture and saying, the very God who invented light in the very beginning, the very God who filled the entire universe with physical light by speaking it into existence, He can fill your heart with spiritual light even if you were previously blinded by the God of this age. Because Satan's work of blinding is great, but God's work of bringing light is even greater. So this gospel that we preach, this gospel that we hold fast to, it is not some human gospel. It is not some contriving of our own best desires. It isn't some sales pitch or feel-good story that that we invented or a self-help tutorial. Because if it were, if it were, it would not have the power to save anyone. If this gospel was, was our brand, or our church's version of a gospel, or my style, or anything like that, or the way that we packaged it to reach a world in 2022 where we live, then it would not have the power to save anyone. It would, at best, be a placebo. You know, something that you take and you think it's it's real, but really it doesn't do anything to actually heal you. It might make a person feel better about their situation in life for a little while, but they're still as sick as they ever were and even more deceived. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. Now, how many times do we get caught up thinking that we somehow must tinker a little bit or package the straightforward message of salvation in Christ? How many times do we think that, hey, telling someone you're a sinner, but Jesus died on the cross, was buried, and rose again to save you, place your faith in Him for salvation. There's forgiveness and reconciliation. How many times do we do we take that message and think, okay, but I'm talking to this person right here, right now, and there's got to be some way to to just slip in a little bit of Jesus with some other stuff that can make them feel better. Or maybe we become expert tacticians 
We carefully craft how we can become the most persuasive. And honestly, a lot of the time, sometimes we become judges of a person. We look at them and, and we either look at the sin in their life or things that they have said or their, their worldview and we say, hey, they're not ready yet to hear the gospel. They're just going to reject it. They're not ready yet. I need to lay more groundwork for years and years and years. How many times do we even make ourselves judges of an individual? I got to ask you, is the gospel real to you? Is it the power of God unto salvation? If your answer to that is yes, then I would implore you for us to get over ourselves. Get out of the way. Stop making it about our own power. Just be the willing messenger through whom God's power can reach lost souls. We read verses 7-12. through 12, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. To the light of the gospel and the knowledge of the glory of God in, in Jesus Christ, it is a treasure. It's absolutely an immeasurable treasure. It's that treasure that should produce the ultimate thanksgiving that we talked about, right? It is the greatest of treasures. But this treasure, Paul writes here, it's contained within, within jars of clay. All right. Now, now what does this mean? Jars of clay. It was a band back in the nineties that I used to, a Christian band I used to listen to. Well, what does this mean? It's a metaphor that Paul is using. Cause what he's saying is that nobody or nothing could be a, a truly worthy container for God's light and glory but much less us. We're fragile, weak, unassuming creatures. I mean, you wouldn't store your most valuable possessions in a clay pot, would you? You might use your gun safe. It's strong. It's sturdy. It might even be fireproof. Or perhaps you might use something ornate or more fitting for such a priceless treasure, like you put jewelry in a jewelry box. But jars of clay, I mean, they're commonplace. Jars of clay in, in this time would be like those, uh, you know, those cartons that we use that I had all over my dorm room in college, those plastic cartons that you place stuff on top. They, they break easily. They're not special or beautiful to look at in any way. And they're also not of any significant value, but God has chosen to put his light in us. And why? Well, first and foremost, God is loving. He is merciful. He desires reconciliation and restoration with his creation. But also, God is in the business of glorifying himself. By putting his light in us, he shows that the excellence, the truth, the light, and the power, and the glory of the gospel is all his and not our own. 
Our weakness allows God's power to shine as He uses us, as He triumphs through us, and the gospel goes forth to others through weak human vessels, despite our weaknesses, because the power and the glory belong not to us, not to the messenger, but to God alone. So Paul really illustrates this here according to his own life. I mean, he explains that he's being hunted down. He's a wanted man. He's being persecuted wherever he goes. But despite it all, the Lord is working through Paul's sufferings and sustaining him. Paul is seeing victory of Jesus in his life so clearly because he was constantly in situations that required him to rely on the power of God to sustain him. He couldn't go anywhere without relying on God's power because he would have fallen down, he would have given up, he would have thrown in the towel, he would have been dead. And because of that, we see Paul's ability to endure adversity is only made possible by Christ. It's not made possible by the man, Paul. It's made possible by God. In fact, we see the gospel's power to spread across the earth in the book of Acts. We see that happening, this narrative unfolding of of the gospel going forth into further and further reaches of the Roman Empire, despite the fact that the gospel was met with so much opposition. So here you have weak human messengers that are in and of themselves nothing to really have much acclaim to them or, or to be impressed by. You also have the powers that be trying to stop the gospel, yet it keeps going forth like wildfire. How, in the face of opposition, is Paul still standing? See, Paul sees all of this affliction and persecution just as a means to demonstrate how powerful God really is. Because everyone would look at him and say, how has he not died or been crippled or gone insane with despair and given up? And how is that message of the cross spreading so rapidly when all the powers that be are doing everything to suppress it? But Paul sees all of his death-like or near-death-like experiences as a means to bring life to places like Corinth as a means to bring life eventually as the gospel would spread to places like Madison, to places like our own hearts. Then we see verses 13 through 18, we read, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal so why why did paul persevere in his mission through all those trials and why should we Well, first of all, as we see in verse 13, he persevered because his true faith in the power of the gospel demanded 
that he boldly proclaim it. Verse 13, Paul is quoting Psalm 116. And Psalm 116 is a psalm where David looks back and expresses how God has delivered him from affliction and death. David himself was also being hunted. David himself knew that he had a purpose, that he was called by God, but he found himself being hunted by Saul, being hunted by enemies. And Paul is saying right here that he has the same spirit of faith that David expresses in that song. That same attitude, that same disposition, that same dependence on the living God. So because Paul believes in the gospel and the power of God so clearly and so truly, it compels him to speak. His faith compelled him to preach boldly. I mean, how could Paul not speak knowing the truth that he had within him? Even when he's looking at the gauntlet of obstacles that he has in front of him, how can he not press on and speak when he knows the power of God unto salvation that is the gospel? In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says to them, Woe to me if I do not speak the gospel. He had to. In Acts 18, the Lord spoke to Paul while he was uh, actually in Corinth. He spoke to Paul in a vision saying, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. You know, in a more contemporary example, I, I think of Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms. There he's standing before them. And what does he tell them? He says, Look, here I stand. I can do no other. Now, of course, he could have sat down. He could have been standing somewhere else. But what he meant is, I know this truth that I have within me. I, I don't have any other choice but to speak it. Those who genuinely believe have no choice. They can't help but speak the truth. True faith cannot remain silent. True faith demands a response. It demands an outward profession of that faith. It can't just be kept up inside and here. So Paul persevered, first of all, because of his genuine faith that left him with no other choice. But then in verse 14, we see the second reason Paul persevered in boldness. Paul boldly proclaimed the good news because of his utmost confidence in the promises of God. He writes... Uh, Talking about the resurrection, he had utmost confidence in the resurrection. He writes of being presented along with all the other fellow believers before God. He sees Christ's resurrection was the prototype for what all believers will one day experience. And Paul's theology of the resurrection gives Paul confidence when he faces threats of death. When he faces threats of death, he knows that Christ has defeated death. When he faces threats of defeat through death, Paul knows that the victory has, has already been won. Regardless of whatever men may try to do to Paul's earthly body, Paul knows that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and that one day Paul will receive a glorified, resurrected, perfected body. He awaits for that day, as it says here, He will, Jesus will bring us with you into His presence. Now the connotation of bring into His presence, it's really this connotation of being presented before a king. Now Paul knows that there's nothing greater than that day to be found faithful and ready before the king. 
to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. So Paul's looking forward to that day when God's church will be presented before himself and Christ at the end of the age. Paul's looking forward to that glorious day where he will stand before the king himself alongside of these believers to whom he is writing in Corinth, alongside believers of every church that he's sown and planted and, and watered along the way in his mission as an apostle, and even alongside believers that were persecuted and martyred by Saul's own hands before his own salvation. So Paul persevered secondly because of that amazing promise, the promise of the resurrection, the promise of the life to come. Then verse 15, we see the ultimate reason why Paul persevered despite all sorts of persecutions. We see the aim of his ministry, the purpose, the focus. Paul's ministry has produced fruit. We see that it is all for your sake so that grace extends. It's for your sake because grace is extending. See, Paul's focus was the spread of the gospel for the purpose of thanksgiving. As grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, what motivated Paul was the glory of God as, as lost souls are turned from darkness to light. Paul's goal obviously was not comfort, reputation, or popularity, or if so, then he failed at that miserably. In fact, I would even contend that the primary focus of Paul's ministry at its core was not even just racking up numbers of converts. It certainly wasn't a numbers game, but I don't even think it was just to see how many. No, that was just the vehicle of his true motivation. Paul's goal in ministry was to increase thanksgiving, to increase the worship of God. Remember, this word for thanksgiving is talking about the response that we give when we receive grace. When we receive that unmerited favor of God, that salvation through Him, this is the response that we give. And so Paul's goal in ministry was to increase thanksgiving, to increase the worship of God. It was to add to that great chorus of redeemed souls, thankfully declaring His praise with gratitude that we have been redeemed. Paul's goal was to increase worship where worship did not exist. His goal was to increase thanksgiving where thanksgiving did not yet exist. Now that required him to go into the absolute darkest places of the world. Places plagued with paganism, idolatry, immorality of all kinds. But he was spreading the gospel, spreading the message that you are lost in your sin, you are on a road to destruction, but there is an answer. There is a Redeemer. And as people are brought to light and their hearts are are turned to thanksgiving, when they receive that grace, when they come to know that amazing grace that they have received, they thankfully worship God. Hearts that formerly knew no worship, lips that formerly professed no worship, would now be hearts and lips that expressed profound, thankful worship. In fact, this, this very word for thanksgiving is a word that's used in the book of Revelation to describe the worship of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. 
That's Paul's ultimate goal, is this thanksgiving from every tongue, tribe, and nation. You see, thanksgiving was the core motivation of Paul's ministry, and it should be the core motivation of this local church's ministry. We should be motivated not only out of our own thanksgiving that we have because we ourselves are the recipients of grace, but we should be motivated just as Paul was to see thanksgiving multiply, to see thanksgiving reach the hearts of those who do not yet know this grace. That should be our desire to see worship abound from places and from lips where worship does not yet exist. As it says here, all to the glory of God. Verses 16 through 18, we see that we have every reason to be thankful and to persevere in any circumstance because we, we see this list of contrasts. We see the outer self, which is wasting away, versus the inner self, which is being renewed day by day. We see the light and momentary versus the eternal and weighty. We see the seen versus the unseen. We see the, the transient versus the eternal. Now Paul, his body is wearing down. In this moment as he writes this, he's very, very obviously mindful of that. He's talked a lot about things that are spiritual, but then put them right next alongside the things that are physical with his body. Through the jars of clay section, through this, and Paul's body is wearing down. He's aware of that. Also, so is all of ours. But in Paul's case, it's persecutions that are grinding his body down. He's been stoned. He's been beaten. He's been imprisoned. He's been chased out of towns. He's faced riots. It's it's harder for Paul to get up and get going in the morning physically because his body has taken such a toll over the years. Paul's body bore the marks of the cost to proclaim the gospel. But his inner self, his spirit, is being renewed day by day. Each day brought a fresh supply of grace for Paul. Each day, he grew more into the likeness of his Savior. So next, Paul contrasts this light and momentary affliction with the eternal weight of glory. Now, just remember for a second what Paul is referring to as light affliction. What Paul is referring to as light affliction, I'm not trying to play a game where we really you know, compare because everything is hard for us that we go through in our trials. But what Paul is calling light is a bit more severe than what a lot of us have ever experienced. Right? The persecutions that Paul has faced are pretty extreme, but it is indeed momentary and light in that it is so short and passing compared to eternity. His suffering is indeed light compared to the weight of glory that awaits us to live eternally in the presence of our Creator and Savior, to reign with Christ perfect peace, free of sin, pain, and death, to know Him to know Him more and to never exhaust or grow tired of His majesty, of His splendor, and His goodness, that is a weight beyond comparison. Understand, what we are thankful for is so much weightier than what we dread. What we are thankful for is so much bigger 
than what we fear. Now, our afflictions and our sufferings don't produce that reward that Paul is talking about here, but they do provide the contrast. That reward is amazing and and great all in and of itself. But when we are going through afflictions and sufferings, how much sweeter does it seem? How much greater does it seem to look forward to that? Because the best earthly life that we could possibly have could never compare to the wonder and glory of eternity that awaits us. You know, it's it's so easy to become ensnared with the things of this earth. And when things are going good, we often take our eyes off the prize. We have so many glimmering, shining things to look at and to distract us. But on the flip side, it's also easy when we face trials and hardship and pain, when things get going tough, to focus on everything around us that's difficult, the pain we feel, the the stress that we experience, the hurt. It's easy to do that rather than realizing that however hard it is, it is all so brief. It's all so light compared to the reward of eternal glory with our Creator. Again, the the greatest pleasure you will ever experience on this planet is far outweighed by the promise we have in Christ. But also, the worst pain you would ever experience on this planet is far outweighed by the promise that we have in Christ. Then lastly here we see the contrast of the seen versus the unseen. We see that the seen is is transient. The unseen is eternal. All that we see on this earth is is just a thin veneer. It's all passing away. Everything that here that's here and now that consumes our thoughts, our emotions, our attitudes, our lusts, our efforts, what we treasure, what we enjoy, what we take comfort in, what we covet, what we hate, all of those things are just a thin veneer that is passing away. Even all of the earthly things that we give thanks for, it's all passing away. It's ephemeral. It's temporary. But the promise we have in Christ is eternal. That promise that we carry in these fragile jars of clay that gets sick, that eventually breaks down, that promise is eternal. And nothing can take it away from us and nothing can destroy it. That which we are ultimately thankful for is everlasting and it is vastly, immeasurably outweighing the greatest pleasure or greatest suffering on this earth. Is that thanksgiving real in your life? Is that gratitude, that response to grace, real? Look, there are three places that any one of us as we sit here could be in regards to that thanksgiving. Any one of us can be in one of these three categories. First of all, you may be outside of this thanksgiving entirely. You don't know Christ. You don't partake in the promise that He offers. You may be thankful about many blessings that you have in your life, the things that you enjoy, but all of those things for which you are thankful are passing things. They will fail you. They will end. They are dying hopes. 
If that's where you are at right now, then delay no further. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. He offers you something by which you can be eternally thankful for, something that will not perish or corrode or corrupt, and that is salvation in Him. But some of us may be in the second category. We are in Christ. We know Christ. We have every reason to offer this kind of thanksgiving. But those afflictions, those trials, those struggles, those things that Paul calls light and momentary, but often to us seem insurmountable, they keep us from abounding in this true thanksgiving. We're caught and we're swept up in the things of this earth. Maybe even sometimes the the things that we enjoy and cherish in this earth. But then there's a third category where you're in Christ. You presently, consciously, personally, spiritually, deeply realize that the weight of that glory to which you have been called is far beyond comparison and you see thanksgiving in every circumstance. You see your trials as a way to glorify God. You see your afflictions and your sufferings as a place for God's power and His grace to abound all the more. Highs, lows, afflictions, sickness, the wasting away of the body, all of these things, you know exactly what Paul is talking about right here. But you have genuine thanksgiving in all of those. And to those who that describes, the challenge is clear. The challenge is clear for all of us. To see that thanksgiving multiplied, not just within ourselves, but as it says here, as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Our challenge here as a local church is to see that thanksgiving multiplied, to see more and more souls in this immediate geographical area around us and all throughout the world, more and more souls who do not know that grace to be reached with that grace so that thanksgiving may increase to the glory of God. Jerry, there's someone at the door, please. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this time that we have. We thank you that you've given us the ultimate reason to be thankful. Lord, I just pray for each and every soul here, Lord, that we would see this thanksgiving, this response to grace as something that we desire to see multiplied. Lord, that it would first be something that transforms us and our disposition and our hearts and our attitudes and our mindsets. That we would truly recognize it through all the highs and lows of life to realize that we have the ultimate reason to be thankful and that is our response to the grace that you have worked in our lives. But then, Lord, I pray that we see the challenge to see thanksgiving increased, to see worship go to places where worship does not yet exist, to individuals who formerly did not know you or even reviled you, Lord, but now worship you and acknowledge the grace that they have received with thankfulness. And Lord, with thanksgiving, we give you all the glory. In the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Amen.